0: This is He Said, Then She Said, a series of conversations with Jewish and Gentile couples from around the world. I'm Tuvia Zaretsky. And as your host, I've been researching for over 20 years some of the intercultural challenges that are described by those Jewish-Gentile couples. We want to get an authentic look into how they navigate their unique and complex challenges and then hear from them how they found spiritual harmony in their relationship. If you or someone you know would like support for similar interfaith relationship issues, contact us by email to info.com at JewishGentileCouples.com Info at JewishGentileCouples.com On today's program, I'm meeting with Aaron and Becky Lewin. They are a fascinating couple now living in Europe. Both of them have had the blessing of growing up and living in multicultural families and contexts. I'm happy to be sharing their story with you today. Today, we're talking to Becky and Aaron Lewin, and they are in Berlin, Germany, and I'm really delighted to have them. Mm-hmm. Hi, guys, to both of you. Hey. Hi, Tobias. Great to be here.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: These two have some, some amazing insight about culture, and, and this is really why I've looked forward to having this conversation. Becky, you're from... Go ahead. I'm
1: from Austria, from a Swiss father and French mom. Yeah, so pretty European.
0: And in your home you spoke what language?
1: We spoke uh, Swiss German which is a German dialect mm-hmm. and Austrian German which is another dialect then obviously in school we had we learned proper German and we learned French and English. Yes.
0: And Aaron um you were this is kind of fun um your parents came from where?
2: So my parents were both born and raised in Zimbabwe, um, you know, Southern Africa. But um, I was actually born in Israel, uh, and we moved about. Um, We moved straight away from Israel to Greece. You were born in Israel.
0: Why did your parents go to Israel from Zimbabwe?
2: Well, (laughs) they actually went, um, they tried their luck in in America. So um, some friends of theirs were moving to the States, and they thought uh, it would be a great uh, opportunity. So they moved with them, and they moved to L.A., they were there for I think like something like two and a half years, trying to get their green card, trying to get their paper sorted out. It didn't work. And um, at that time, my um, my father's parents had made Aliyah; they'd emigrated to Israel. And um, my my father's father, or my you know, my grandfather, uh, got my father a job, and so that's why they moved to Israel.
1: So first they thought America is the promised land, but then they went to the <laughs> proper promised land. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So your, your father is Jewish. Yes.
2: And your mom? She's not Jewish. She's from a, a, you know, an an Anglican um, Christian background. They were, they were traditional, right? So both my father's family, you know, traditional Jewish, my, uh, my mother's family, traditional Christian, I think probably belief in God, but not in a, in a, sort of a deep way, sort of maybe a God who was far removed, you know, up in, up in heaven somewhere and not really interested in what's going on down here. Yeah. And religion didn't really play a big role in either of my parents' lives uh, when they were growing up.
0: Okay. So they were, they were in Israel, then they moved to Greece and eventually they ended up in London, England, where you spent most of your growing up years, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just, just North of London uh, in Oxford, you know, very famous for the university.
0: Sure. Becky, when you and and Aaron met, where was that?
1: Well, we both went to Africa, um, West Africa, and worked there for a couple of months. But we never ended up being there at the same time. But we had the same friends there. So we heard of each other. And uh, so I knew that he was Jewish and I was planning to go to Israel with my sisters and Uh, going there talking with people about God, about who they think the Messiah is, about all that kind of stuff. And so I asked him if he would somehow be interested to come along. And he was. And so there we met for the first time. And yeah, we we had like three weeks there as a group. Yeah, going around in the country.
0: And Aaron, you told me something that was interesting, really, really caught my attention that when you first had conversations. What language were you speaking to each other?
2: So we started off when we met speaking English. Um, I I grew up monolingual. Uh, that's changed over the years. I uh, now speak several languages. But uh, at the time, my German wasn't at the same level as Becky's English. So we were, we were just conversing in English. But um, I soon noticed uh, over the course of our friendship that uh, she was a different person when she spoke her mother tongue, which was this Austrian dialect. And, uh, you know, I know that from, from learning languages myself, that if I'm speaking a different language, somehow your personality changes a little bit. You, you just, you, you know, language is a vehicle for culture, right? So you, you find yourself in that culture. And so um, when I realized actually, she's a little bit different when she speaks her, her mother tongue, I wanted to know that version of Becky. And so, uh, you know, I said, can you speak a bit more or can you teach it to me or whatever? And then she was the one who suggested, well, why don't we do this? I'll speak my Austrian dialect to you and you reply back in English. And so we both and we do that to this day where we, we both speak our mother tongues to each other because it's easier to communicate in your mother tongue. And it's, of course, easier to to understand a foreign language rather than to speak it. So we figured that that should um, help our communication.
1: So sometimes we had uh, really funny (laughs) situations. We lived in Budapest um, at some point in Hungary. Yeah. And um, so there in Hungary where we lived, sometimes we were going with a tram or underground and people were like, you know, sitting across of us and then going like, yeah, this guy is speaking English, but then, what kind of English is she talking back to him? (laughs) Because they they were also, you could see who knew a bit of English or a bit of German and they, they got so confused. They really didn't understand what was going on there.
2: Yeah. You could see the question marks on their faces. It was quite funny. How
0: often, I mean, do you find yourself stopping each other and saying that word you just used? What did that mean? Um, did you mean this by that? It sound you know you you report what you've heard and find out that it's different.
1: We're both, uh, I think, at a very good level of the languages, so it doesn't really happen in everyday life. It's just when Aaron is reading like the famous five to our kids that I sometimes have to interrupt. Hang on, like <laughs> what is that? You know, it's talking about quarries and. Gold ingots and that kind of stuff that I've never heard before.
2: Exclusive vocabulary that we don't use uh, in everyday life. No, I mean I think it probably happened a lot earlier on, where Mm. we um you know especially for me learning her dialect was you know what does this mean exactly. But something that I've realised is that we spend our lives saying mostly the same thing. We're just repeating ourselves. And so if you hear an expression. Once you're more, you're most likely to hear it again. And it's only if you're speaking about something very specific that you're using very specific vocabulary that maybe there's a new word and it does happen every so often, you know, Becky will use a word and say, what, what was that? I've never heard that. Of course, nowadays it doesn't happen so much.
1: Mm -hmm. One funny word that Aaron likes a lot in my dialect is the, the word for tree. It's called bomb. So every time I talk about trees, he thinks I'm trying to blow up the city.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Surprised we haven't had the police come
0: around. This is going to be recorded, guys. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's fascinating. I try and and explain to people that language is a function of culture, as you said, and it changes. And we can can change our language pattern. We can change our, our language structure. And each time, it's we find that language is malleable. I, I really love the the observation that our personalities are affected by the language that we're using, especially if we're using a, a heart language. And it happens for for couples, whether they're speaking the same language, because all communication is cross-cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you were both speaking the same language, mm-hmm. because we haven't had the same experiences, there are associations with ideas mm-hmm. like bomb or boom, you know, my first thought is that all the people I know named Teitelbaum or Greenbaum yeah, or, yeah, you know, so on. Yeah. And that just comes from run, living around Ashkenazi Jews in, in North America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ethnicity doesn't change. And I wanted to ask you, Aaron, why don't you why don't you describe your ethnicity?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, for me, it's always been an interesting question. Um, I suppose you can tell by now that I'm uh, quite a, a mixed person. I don't like think mixed up because that's, implies I'm confused, which I don't think I am, but, um, you know, parents not. from, <laughs> parents from um, you know, one Jewish parent, one, one non-Jewish parent, one Christian parent, one, you know, Jewish parent, um, different countries and stuff like that. So for me, it's always been a question of who am I? What is my identity? And that was uh, a big question for me growing up, um, you know, born in Israel, Jewish father, but traditional Judaism says I'm not Jewish because my mother's not Jewish but we have relatives in Israel. We would visit there, You know, uh, always hearing the Hebrew language. So of course I did feel Jewish. And I remember when I was at school, a kid came up to me and he said to me, Aaron, are you Jewish? With this really menacing tone. And I remember answering him saying, no. And I remember in that moment realizing that I was Jewish or at least I identified and felt Jewish because by saying no, I was actually denying who I was. And, and I did it on purpose. I denied who I was in order to, to get out of trouble. So that was an interesting moment where I sort of thought, okay, great. This guy was you know maybe being a bit anti-Semitic, but he actually helped me to to work up my identity. So, yeah, I, I always um, identify as Jewish.
0: So where does that Jewishness come from? If it's not cultural, where does it come from?
2: Well, it's, first of all, it's definitely ethnic. Um, you know you have this ethnicity you have mm-hmm. um, this blood i don't really want to get into to to race or questions of blood or race so it just brings up you know bad memories from from history especially, especially
0: there in berlin
2: mm-hmm. yeah exactly but um there is something to that father even even at his work my, my father came to believe in jesus he he identifies as as a messianic jew and he came to believe in jesus before i was born and still at work he was always known as jerry the jew even though he was, you know, Christian by faith, so that definitely that identity passed down. So yeah, I would say there is this eth- ethnic ethnicity or ethnic identity of being Jewish, a cultural identity of being Jewish that I that I have, and that I have whether whatever anyone else defines me as. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole conversation going on um, here in North America, probably other parts of of uh, the world on on identity these days, and. Mm-hmm. Ethnic identity is less, there's less sensitivity about it here than there is in Europe because of what happened in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. But people, people don't, don't think in ethnic terms as much here and now until they open the Bible. And then they realize, well, there are two groups that are described in the Bible. There's Jews and everybody else. (laughs) And that term for everybody else is Gentiles. You get in the new Testament, the, the equivalent was Greeks. So that's why I, I I've come to the conclusion that it's easier easier to talk about ethnicity when we're talking about mixed couples where one partner's Jewish. Mm-hmm. It's easy to see the, the distinction that way. Mm. Culture is is so variegated and learned and acquired and malleable, changes. Ethnicity doesn't. Mm. Becky, um, you were telling me you had family from the Alps.
1: Because I grew up so mixed, it was always clear that I'm not like the others in Austria. You know, they're Austrian, like their great-grandmother is Austrian. They're great, 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 <laughs> you know, whatever. So I always knew, I I always had to define who I am from my ethnicity when people asked. And I would always say I'm Swiss and French, but I grew up in Austria. That was like my... <laughs> thing that, um, that I played back every time. But then I, I also realized that people are also asking for, like, what's the culture you're living? Like, what feasts do you celebrate? What does it look like in, in a practical sense? And there also, because I was from mixed background we didn't have so many strong traditions or it were traditions that developed um, as we were living as a family. I'm, I'm grateful that I didn't have this strong traditional or religious or whatever background and so I didn't grow up thinking this is my identity or even you know I'm from this village in this valley and that's my identity. So I never had that. And so from early on, I actually had to think about who am I? Who do I define myself as? And um, because my parents, they taught us very early on on that God is the one who created the world. God is the one who created you and who who wanted you um, and who planned your life and where you're born and who you will be and who you'll get married to. And I could see that they're not just telling me that to make me feel nice, but that's actually what they believe. And I could see it, it worked in their lives.
0: I hear in Europe very often the, the picture of ethnicity gets kind of blurred with nationality, with the uh, political state. People do the same thing with with Jews when we talk about Israel, if we're, in in a conversation, um, uh, almost anywhere, whether it's Christians or non Christians, when we talk about Israel, people are, are sometimes a bit confused about whether we're we're talking about the patriarch Israel, the his children, yes, who over centuries were considered the people of Israel, and we can still use that term uh, of Jews today, although we try and distinguish between Israelites and Israelis. When we talk yes. about Jews in in the land of the state of Israel today, Becky, does the does the term Gentile fall easily on your ears? Is it an awkward term for you?
1: I think Gentiles wouldn't call themselves Gentiles, but it's always right. clear that they are being called Gentiles. For me, it's clear I am a Gentile, but I don't have a problem with it because if you look at God's word, what He thinks about Gentiles. He
0: loves Gentiles. Aaron, have you ever had somebody say to you, "Well, I'm not really a Gentile. I don't like that term."
2: It's interesting. In German, uh, the word for Gentile is also the word for heathen, so mm-hmm. it's even worse, right? It's like mm-hmm. uh, a heathen, you know. Especially in English, it's got that those those awful connotations. So yeah. I, I tend to shy away from it. I tend to use the word nation. You know, I make a distinguish uh, a distinction between Jewish people and people of the nations. Um, so I don't know maybe that's a bit artificial I
0: don't find it artificial at all that's you know you're dealing with a, a cultural perception in German culture
2: you know the Hebrew word for, for Gentile is goy and of course you know with Yiddish and stuff it's become a little bit uh, pejorative but in the original Hebrew it just means nation and and, and Israel is even described as a goy at one point mm-hmm. uh, you know the nation the Jewish nation of Israel is described as as a, as a nation because that's what the word means so yeah, I think describing people, you know, as you said, the Bible or the Jewish people, you know, it's very Jewish to define someone as either Jewish or belonging to the rest of the nations. But we're not the only one who does that. You know, everyone else does it. You've got, uh, in, in a particular country, you've got the locals and then the foreigners. We we love doing that. It's just, it's psychology, it's anthropology. We like making groups of of us and them. The Greeks did it, you know, the barbarians and the Greeks. Mm-hmm. They, they had their difference. So I think it's kind of a natural thing to do.
1: I think God also makes distinctions and puts into groups, but he doesn't uh, put it in like these hierarchies that we like so much because we want to be at the top. We want to be the best. So if we talk about foreigners, that always means like we're higher up than they are, right? And God doesn't see it that way. So the problems always come when, when it's from our perspective and how we perceive things.
0: When we look at the Torah, it's so clear that he created men and women mm-hmm. in his image mm-hmm. and all bear the image of God, yeah.
2: mm-hmm. the
0: dignity, the value that God has imputed into all of us. And I think that's that's the other side of looking at you know how does God relate to all the, the nations.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, okay. You're living in Germany there's certain things that you have to have to accommodate that are, are German customs. Are there other things that you've done intentionally to capture the culture from both of your families and accommodate to where you're living?
2: I think there's a lot of things that we've done unintentionally, you know, subconsciously that's, that is always the case, isn't it? With, uh, with parents passing things down to the children. We don't even realize what culture is often in our lives. Probably some of the unintentional things, I guess, are the the food and stuff that, you know, Becky does most of the cooking. So the food that she's grown up with, that's passed down. And I guess value systems, you know, what was valued in her house is also passed down. One thing that we did get intentional about was deciding what does it look like for us as a a Jewish Gentile couple coming together, marrying, having children? What are we going to do in terms of um, festivals and celebrations? You know, what What are what are our traditions that we want to develop? We decided that, specifically for me, I, I found it very helpful for children to, to celebrate Jewish festivals because there's so much symbology. There's so much there that children can learn. It's very, you know, tangible and practical. And so we decided, yeah, we will light candles on Friday evening and, and have some, some challah and, and wine. We will, you know. So you're celebrating Shabbat. Yes, exactly. Sabbath. You know, um, for Passover, we'll do a Passover um, seder. The point is, it's it's meant to be something to help us. It's not meant to be like a a bind on us or anything like that. And the decision that we made, because perhaps if it's not clear yet, um, I'm also I also came to, to faith to believe in in Jesus as the Messiah. So we said that whatever we were to do in terms of cultural practice, we would do it as long as it helped us in our in our faith with him and, and in, and in passing that on to the children. And if it was, if it just became an empty ritual, like we find ourselves just lighting the candles because they're there or because we've always done that, then we would actually stop doing that because then it wouldn't be a help anymore.
0: Becky, I want to ask at this point, are there any holiday festivals that either you grew up with or are part of German culture around you that you've said, you know, we're not going to do that.
1: So because I'm from a mixed background, we didn't grow up with very strong traditions. And my parents were always thinking about what we're actually doing, if it makes sense in the way we're living. So I would say we hardly had any like empty tradition going on in our family. And I would say the same was the case for Aaron. So he also didn't grow up with strong traditions. And, and I think that was a real privilege coming together as a couple and then being able to just continue like that. And uh, actually with everything we start new as a family, as a couple, to think, why are we doing that? So that's, that's a real privilege. And uh, for me, we, for example, we used to celebrate Christmas It was a living faith of my parents in God, in his Messiah. We, for example, we didn't have a Christmas tree. We didn't have a lot of things that people do for Christmas, like always turkey or it wasn't about food, right? But it was about God sent his son for us to save us from our sin. That was the the reason why we celebrated Christmas to remind us of that. Mm
2: There are some things, for example, that we, I mean, it's easier for us to talk about Germany, right? Because there's things like Valentine's um, Valentinstag, um, which uh, we, we discover a lot of this stuff through the kindergarten. You know, we put our kids mm. into kindergarten and they come home and they say, oh, it's um, uh, it's this holiday or that holiday. And we're like, oh, is it? Okay, we, we didn't know that, you know. So Germany has, um, I guess, some extra holidays, some things... So we made, uh, there's a couple of things like that where, where, yeah, we said, we don't want to take this from, from the Austrian culture. We don't want to take it from the German culture where we live. Funny story, my mother, of course, growing up in a, um, a Christian home, like nominal Christian Anglican home, grew up with Christmas trees. You know, that's, that's what you do, right? My father, growing up in a Jewish home, never had a Christmas tree in his life. And so when they got married, and especially when, uh, when I came along, uh, my father was all for having Christmas trees, you know, because it was something that he missed out in his childhood. My mother, at this time having come to a, to a living faith and not like um, the sort of the, the dead, empty religion that she was brought up with, didn't want a Christmas tree because she felt there was like a pagan influence on the holiday and all of these things. So ironically, um, my Jewish father was arguing for a, a Christmas tree and my non-Jewish mother was saying, no, we don't need one of those. So yeah. it's funny how things work.
0: And I was amazed to find out at the... Uh jewish museum in berlin there's a whole section on the jewish community that was assimilating in germany in the 1850s to 1870s and mm-hmm. there's literally a room showing off a jewish home with a, a hanukkah bush
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and i you know I'd, I'd heard that kind of as a, a funny cultural observation but never knew that it really did happen in yeah. in germany yeah we talk about the hope in finding spiritual harmony as a a way of bringing couples together who would ordinarily face dire challenges in their um, experience as a, a Jewish-gentle couple. You two have done this very well. You've looked at culture very intentionally. I mean, the fact that you choose what language you're going to speak speak to one another so you can get at the heart, that's really pretty cool to me. So in your home, what things do you do to live out spiritual harmony?
2: I think the most important thing is to be on the same wavelength when it comes to to spirituality, and that was always something that was very, very important for 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 both of us. When I was, you know, when we met each other, we realized straight away we're on the same page. Um, we come from very different backgrounds, but we have essentially the same faith. You know, same faith in in Yeshua or or Jesus um, as the Messiah and what that means for our, for our lives practically on a day-to-day basis. Um, And from that foundation, then, you know, we can, we can just build on it. And for for us, I I think it's fair to say for both of us that, you know, we would want our kids to also have that experience. Um, And it's not something that we can, can give them, you know, it's a, it's a personal relationship with God. It's not something that you can do for your kids, but you can prepare the ground, you know, so to speak. We do that through praying with our kids Telling our kids about what we experience with with God, telling our kids about what we do when we fail, when we make mistakes. Also, in our relationship with our kids, you know, we own our mistakes. If we say an angry word, if we do something wrong, we we own that, and uh, we get them to own that when when they do that.
0: You mentioned um, when you pray together. A lot of people might have no idea what what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, do you have a do you have a book? Do you have a a pattern that you follow? What is prayer like when you when you say we pray together?
1: So we believe that God made us as human beings so he would have someone to be in relationship with. And so praying for us is nothing else than what we experience if we have this loving relationship as a couple, we want to talk with each other. Mm. You know, it like yeah, if you're in love you want to talk and, uh, and you will tell each other what you find hard, what you find good, like what you love about the other person, what you didn't understand in his her behavior. And for us, this is praying. It's talking with God, communicating with him, sharing our lives, our thoughts, our distress, our like everything with him. Um, you don't really need a book in, as a couple if you want to talk to each other. So we don't think you actually need a book to talk to God, but you talk from heart to heart.
2: I think, yeah. you know, prayer, because, of, because it's a religious word, sometimes people, um, they get put off by it. Um, I think you have to define it. And it, it is, you know, as Becky's saying, it's just talking with God. And if you, if you find a book, like a prayer book, is helpful for that. You know that's great. I mean, there's some couples. Sometimes we've done it as well, where you, you can find like lists of questions that you can ask each other, right? Or these, you know, um, these games that you can play, where it's like, you know, remember a f- funny memory together or whatever. So, you know, if, if, sure, if it helps you, then then you can do that. But it's it's just building relationship with God. That's that's what prayer is. It's not something. It doesn't have to be something mystical or weird or boring or or strange.
0: So, for some of the couples who are listening and and who are experiencing cross-cultural challenges. You guys have lived as observers, almost as outsiders in almost every culture you've been in because you've been through so many. What kind of advice or tips would you have?
2: I think communication is just the most important thing uh, in any kind of relationship. And the more differences that that there are between a couple different background, different religion, different language, whatever different ethnic group, you're putting up more and more barriers to hinder um, good communication. So I would just say make sure you really work on that and if if your partner says something make sure you get them to define it. I mean obviously you'd have to do it with every word and the communication gets gets easier the longer you you're together as a couple because you get to know each other better. Define everything, talk about everything. Talk about the things that make you mad with the other person and why why do you get upset? You know, what is it that provokes you? Just work on your, on your communicate.
1: My biggest tip would be be ready to forgive consider the other one as higher, better as yourself, that really helps. (laughs) Like the moment I think I've got it all sorted out and he's the problem. Usually that's uh, then we're on the downward slope and it ends up really badly. And then I need to forgive a lot of things. (laughs) But uh, usually if I can see that maybe I didn't mean it all that bad and um, yeah, maybe I misunderstood something, usually that helps a big deal,
0: yeah. We put together a small booklet a couple of years ago that noted that Jewish gentle couples experience different challenges going through four stages in their relationship, different challenges when they're getting to know one another, dating, uh, different challenges trying to pull together a wedding. Huge challenges there. And then when they're together without children, trying to define who they are, and then just discovering how different their world is when when they see themselves, the biblical idea of being one flesh really starts to come into very close proximity to what life is like at that point. And then when the children come along, of course, that raises all the expectations about what our family and generation to generation was going to look like and how we would hand along our culture to our children. So that's just one side of it the other is all the the different cultural categories whether it's and you've touched on some of these festivals relating to family or the culture around you so that little booklet's available and i'll be able to um to share that uh, later on well thanks thanks to both of you appreciate you you giving your time and your hearts thank you
2: thank you we enjoyed those as well
0: Well, I think you can see that Aaron and Becky have a unique outlook on life, identity, and spirituality. In a real sense, they live their lives within their current cultural context as outsiders. Both share a spiritual core belief in the one and same God of the whole 66 books of the Bible. And if you or someone you know would like support for finding the spiritual resources they described, contact us by email to info at JewishGentilecouples.com info at jewishgentilecouples.com And when you do, let me know if you'd like to receive the booklet that I mentioned earlier. The title is Finding Spiritual Harmony in Your Jewish-Gentile Relationship. I hope you'll contact us soon, and for now, Shalom and Blessings.